welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. Thanks to those of you who listened to our first episode on Yevgeny Zemyatin's novel We with the philosopher Jacob Howland. Another feature of Enduring Interest is that we plan to group episodes around a particular theme. This first theme is totalitarianism and ideology. In future episodes from this series, we'll be discussing Raymond Aron's classic from 1955, The Opium of the Intellectuals, the great French historian Francois Furet's book, The Passing of an Illusion, The Idea of Communism in the 20th Century, a trilogy of plays by the dissident statesman Václav Havel, Uh, the plays including Audience, The Unveiling, and Protest, and two poems by the Nobel Prize-winning poet Czesław Miłosz. Future themes will include education, race and culture, and American constitutionalism. Please remember that you can suggest books or essays and guests for the podcast. Please message us on Twitter. Our handle is at TheEIPod. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome the renowned China scholar Perry Link to the podcast to discuss his essay, China, the Anaconda in the Chandelier, which was first published in the New York Review of Books in April of 2002. Perry Link has degrees in Western philosophy and Chinese history from Harvard University, and for most of his career taught modern Chinese language and literature at Princeton University. He is now Chancellorial Chair for Teaching Across Disciplines at the University of California, Riverside. He is the author of An Anatomy of Chinese, Rhythm, Metaphor, and Politics. He co-edited a volume called No Enemies, No Hatred, a collection of essays and poems by the great Chinese dissident Lu Jiabua. And he's now co-authored a forthcoming biography called Long March Toward Freedom, The Life, Times, and Thought of Lu Jiabua, co-authored with Wu Daiji. I first encountered this essay about a decade ago when it was recommended to me by another Chinese scholar. Since then, it seems whenever the topic of the character and behavior of the Chinese regime comes up, someone inevitably will say, have you read Perry Link's classic essay? I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, welcome to the podcast, Perry Link. It's a pleasure to have you here to discuss your now famous essay, The Anaconda and the Chandelier. It's, it's, uh, it's great to talk with you. I'm happy to be here and to talk about that essay in particular. Yeah, so let's <laughs> it's one of let's, my favorites. Yeah, let's jump right in and talk about. I thought we might um, talk about the origins of the essay first, and then we can jump into the argument of it in a few minutes. So the first question is, what did did something in particular prompt you to write the article? Something that you you heard or or witnessed? Something that was going on in China? What was the original impulse for the for the essay? There was a particular sort of impression that I had, but it didn't happen at a particular time. It built up for a while. I first went to China in the 70s, and I visited and worked a couple of years in the 80s and came in contact with Chinese officials and somehow got the feeling that I was supposed to measure up to their expectations of me. And originally I was fine with that. I wanted to make a good impression in China and be invited back. And, but I had this, this nagging doubt that that was really a solid basis for telling what I thought. And then I started to notice that other China scholars had the same kind of feeling. Uh, so it was a vague sort of feeling. And when I came to write this article, it was trying to make concrete what I had felt vaguely for quite a bit of time. Okay. And then I want to ask you about the reception of the of the piece because, so this is the spring of 2002 that it was published. Uh, I was in graduate school in the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s. I recall uh, taking a comparative politics course where we focused on China. And I wrote an essay 
on China. And I remember looking at an issue of the, of the journal, the Journal of Democracy. Right. And, and the theme of the, of the journal that, um, that quarter was, when will China democratize? Mm-hmm. And my sense, just recalling that period, is kind of the, the general sense of things back in that period, roughly around the time you wrote the piece, was that China is kind of on its way to changing, it's, it's transforming its economy, and the political changes will follow. And so just, just thinking about when your, when your essay was published, it, it seems to me that your essay must have been kind of out of step with what some of the other China analysts and scholars might have been thinking. Is, is that right? What was the reception like when you wrote it? Well, there was a spectrum of opinion about China's future at the time. And even in my mind, there was a, a spectrum, if that's the word. I was hoping for more democratizing and so on. Uh, the reception was, it surprised me. <laughs> I first wrote it for the Wilson Center in Washington, who had a little conference on censorship in China. And they put it in their newsletter, but it didn't go anywhere. And I'm not even sure anybody read it there. So I asked them, would you mind if I offer this to the New York Review of Books as well? And they said, no, go ahead. So I did. And when it came out there, the response was fast and broad. And I was surprised. Within 24 hours, I got some fan letters from old friends in the China field who said, wow, you really nailed it. This is great. And then what surprised me was that people in other fields, out of the scholarly world, diplomats, businessmen, and these were people who didn't want to say what I had said, but they were glad that I had said it. <laughs> right. <laughs> because right. they said, this is this is our life too. We have to deal with this anaconda feeling and we're glad you said it. As a scholar, of course, I was more free to speak frankly than they were. Their businesses and national reputations were at stake. But for me too, of course, something was at stake. I knew that writing this kind of piece would not endear me to the leadership. By that time, I'd already been on a blacklist though for what, six years. So it's funny when you get put on a blacklist, people normally think that's a big loss and it is a loss in some ways, but in one way it's liberating because all through the eighties, when I was beginning to have these feelings about something's looming over me, I wanted to adapt to it because I wanted to still get visas and get favors in going to China. But once you're on a blacklist, you sort of think, you know, what the heck? <laughs> you're liberated yeah, yeah. in a sense. Right. So right. I wrote it in that sense. And people who wrote to me these fan letters also sort of vicariously, I think, participated in my feeling of liberation for having done it. Right. And do you mind if I ask you what got you? Was there something in particular that you wrote or said that got you put on the on the blacklist? Uh, there must have been, but this example is a good example of what I try to write in that essay. They don't tell you what uh-huh. you did wrong. Right, they want right. that to be vague, because if it's vague, then you pull back in every direction. Okay. <laughs> when yeah, you self-censor, you're harder on yourself than it would be if they spelled it out. So to this day, I don't know, but of course I have theories, and my friends have theories, I can share them with you if you want, but it's a somewhat different topic. Yeah, sure. A couple guesses. Uh, One theory that came out quickly was that in 1994, Bill Clinton changed the policy of measuring China's uh, human rights progress and deciding whether or not to give China most favored nation trading privileges. And from 19, from after the massacre in 89 until 94, that was very effective. Every year in the spring, the US government would get some, uh, some, would put some demands to the Chinese government and get some dissidents released or some broadcasts allowed in or something like that. In 94, uh, Clinton under pressure from the business community in the US decided to make the trading privileges permanent so that they wouldn't be subject to this pressure. And my friends, my Chinese dissident friends, looked at that and said, that's why they put you in the blacklist, because now they know that they can do that, and there's not going to be any cost. 
if they started blacklisting scholars, then sure. the U.S. Congress could say, stop blacklisting our scholars to put on that list. Now that that leverage was gone, it might just... So that's one theory, that it was Clinton's decision. Another is that after the massacre in 89, there were a number of refugees, intellectual refugees from Beijing mostly, but China in general, who came to the U.S. and were sort of high and dry. I was at Princeton University then. I taught most of my career at Princeton. And a wealthy donor gave us a million dollars, just dropped it on the table sort of and said, here, take care of those people. And we did. And we had a, up to about 25, 26 of them at one time until they found their legs and went elsewhere. Hmm. But the reason that's a theory is that in 1994, that group of refugee scholars came to me and asked if I would be the chairman of their board for what we call the Princeton China Initiative. It's, a, it's one of these 501c3 corporations. And I said, yes, I didn't even think about it. They said, aha, now they identify us with you, you with us, and that's why you're on the blacklist. Right, yeah, that makes sense. That seems like- But neither of those is my favorite theory. My favorite theory that I'm pretty sure is it, is that at the massacre in 1989, in fact, the day of the massacre, I went to visit the astrophysicist Fang Lijie and his wife, who were number one and number two on the most wanted list at the time. Although I didn't know that until a number of days later. But they asked for my help and I gave it to them. I brought them to a tourist hotel and found them a room. And the next day I got a car and brought them to the US embassy where they stayed for 13 months. And this became a big sore point between the US and Chinese governments with them in the embassy. I think it's that dirty deed that I did. And the reason I think that the puzzle there is that that was in 89, but from 93 to 96, I went to China six times for short trips of various. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I got visas. Then suddenly in 96, I didn't. For a while, I thought that can't be the reason because they would have not let me in at all. But later I thought, no, it was about 96 that the National Academy of Sciences, who had sponsored me during that year when I brought Fang into the embassy, sort of made it clear in some of their letters to the Chinese government that their exchange with the Chinese government would continue regardless. And I think that <laughs> for those first six years, the Chinese government still viewed me through the lens of the National Academy of Sciences and didn't want to cut off the scientific flow, which as we know now is, was cr crucial to their economic rise. But then when they learned finally that, oh no, Perry Link is not that connected with us, he doesn't work for us. So you can, I'm sure the National Academy didn't say anything like this, but the message came through that he's expendable, you can crack down on him and it won't interrupt the scientific exchange. I think that's the reason, but as I say, I don't know. Yeah, could be a, any of those three candidates seems seem possible. Any what? Just one more question about the reception, the initial reception of the article. Any kind of negative reception, either oh, it's not that bad, you're overstating it, or kind of a prudential, you shouldn't really talk about this so publicly. I mean, anyone kind of push back for your former hypothesis? No. Nobody said that I'm going too far. You've read it. It's, it's not a, a fire and brimstone article. It's, it's sort of modestly put that the impact is big, but it isn't a flamboyant article. No, no, and no. I didn't get that kind of criticism. I did get the latter kind, which I found, to be honest, irritating, and I still do. People who essentially came to me and said, Duh, of course you're on a blacklist if you don't know any better than to write articles like that, you jerk. But that irritated me now and still does because I didn't write it with the idea of either earning or spending any credit with the Chinese government. I wrote it because I thought it was true and important. Right. <laughs> yeah, that should be enough. All right, well, let's get into the, the argument of the essay. You start out 
contrasting the the Mao years and the the early two thousands under um, Zemin. Yeah, yeah. you make the point that in some ways things are better. Um, So yeah, just talk about the the differences that you lay out between the the Mao years and and the period that you were writing the essay. Well, the Mao years, the late Mao years, especially the late 60s and early 70s, were truly frightening in China. I start out with this story about a man who accidentally kills a cat and then has to hide the fact at the cost of his freedom, maybe even his life. That kind of story was true at the time. It was much more dangerous, including physically dangerous, to have a political mistake on your record during the Mao years. That softened considerably. So I wanted to make the point at the beginning that the way things were in the early 2000s was much subtler and not as costly as during the Mao years. But I also hope I didn't give the impression that it was fundamentally a different kind of censorship because it isn't. In the Mao years, if you were accused of a political crime, it was your duty to confess. Even if you weren't quite clear what you were confessing, you had to examine your inner thoughts. One of the cultural revolution slogans was dig out revolution from the depths of your soul. So there was still that command that you examine yourself and look into yourself and therefore censor yourself. So that's continuous with the later period. That fundamental principle, right down to the present day, is in place. Right. At the beginning of the piece, I mean, just to to emphasize your point about continuity, uh, you write that the highest priority of the top leadership of the Communist Party remains as in the past, not economic development or a just society or China's international standing or any other goal for the nation as a whole, but its own grip on power. Right. So that's, that's, I think, the basic, the basic continuity. Um, When I wrote that sentence, that was pretty radical. I don't know anybody who'd written a sentence like that quite as bald as my sentence there. But I would say that by now, that's almost become common knowledge. The US State Department views the Communist Party of China that way now. And you often see in the press that regime maintenance is their top priority. At the right. time though, that was that was not common knowledge. Yeah, and you and you call it a, a kind of dull but fundamental fact that you just have to face. The other thing that you mentioned, even even though there's some there's some discontinuities, as as you just suggested, you you suggest that the essential methods are the same. I, th- I think what you do initially is to contrast what you call kind of psychological control and self-censorship to what you had noticed about the Soviet system, which included much more overt ideological training that, that you'd have to take courses in Marxist-Leninism and kind of catechism almost. And you, you suggest that the Chinese system is much different depending on more psychological manipulation. So maybe just talk for a few minutes about that um, psychological control and how it works. Well, the psychological control, that's a good phrase for it, because that's what's continuous from the 1950s till now. Uh, What I meant by pointing out a different kind of censorship is that often in the West, especially, we think of censorship as crossing out words and documents or taking them down so there's a blank on your, or you know what our government does with classified documents that are redacted, so-called. It's a matter of crossing things out. That's very much not the way the censorship in China, in communist China has ever worked. I say in communist China because before then, in the early part of the 20th century under the KMT, there was that kind of mechanical censorship where a column in a newspaper would just come out blank or something because of that mechanical uh, censorship. And the Soviet Union too was more mechanical in the way it censored. In China, it's always been overwhelmingly psychological. And now the way it's turning to the West and trying to spread 
its control of international thought, that psychological principle is still at the forefront. I'll give a quick example of that. You may have heard about the controversy in our country and around the world really with the Confucius Institutes mm -hmm, that are mm -hmm. funded by the Chinese propaganda department in order to give a good image of the Communist Party of China all around the world. And they're controversial on US campuses because Americans are reflexively worried about censorship. And so it often comes up that the managers of the Confucius Institutes get asked, did they prevent you from doing anything? Did they cancel any events that you wanted to plan? Did they cross out any words in your programs or anything? And the American managers of the Confucius Institutes always say, no, 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 they didn't do any of that. No, see, we're not censored. And that's true. That kind of censorship is extremely rare in the Confucius Institutes. There are examples of campuses wanting to invite the Dalai Lama to come or something, and the Confucius Institute leadership will come out and say, no, 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 let's not do that. So that physical kind of censorship is there, but overwhelmingly it's not. It's psychological. That is, will the manager of a Confucius Institute think of having a program on Tibet, the Dalai Lama, the Uyghurs, the Falun Gong, the Taiwan problem, the Hong Kong problem, the vast wealth of the top leadership, all these so-called, uh, or the massacre, you still can't talk about that. All of these things are forbidden and quite literally censored. I mean, you, you can't do them, but it's not because of a rule that says you can't do it. And it's not because a program sheet is torn off of a bulletin board, it's because the people who run the programs just know inside, you're not supposed to do that. You'll lose your funding from Beijing if you do that. So even going abroad now, this uh, psychological using fear to induce self-censorship. In a nutshell, that's the anaconda theory. Using fear to induce self-censorship, adding the element of vagueness that we just talked about. If you're not quite sure where the red line is, you tend to pull back much more than if you do know where the red line is. That reminded me, so I, I think I mentioned um, in our email exchange that I work on some Czech dissidents. One of Václav Havel's friends and uh, co-workers, Václav Benda, he worked on Charter 77 too, Right. He wrote an essay where he talked about the kind of repression and, and he talked about the, the rule that there are no fixed rules. Yes. And he says, if you have the sense that you're not quite sure why person A got in trouble when person B doesn't, right? right. As you suggest, you'll try to um, restrain a much broader range of speech and, and behavior if you can't. You can't exactly. It reminded me exactly of the Benda, the Benda example. And another advantage of that arrangement from the point of view of the ones doing the censoring is that you can be completely arbitrary. <laughs> if you have 10 people, all of whom are doing the wrong thing, you don't have to punish all 10. You can pick number two and number eight because they're your personal enemies for some other reason. Right. So the arbitrary power is another benefit of using vagueness. Right. Just one more, maybe one more question about the, the psychological control. Uh, I think you've suggested that it, it works in part because of this kind of looming fear in the back of your mind, right? That you know that there might be some taboo subjects or the certain um, subjects that you dare not wander into. But to what extent is there a kind of positive inducement? Are people, you know, people who sort of spout the party line about this or that, do they get benefits? I mean, how, how does, I, I'm reminded of the, the social credit system one, one hears right. about, is there kind of positive inducements for being a good soldier? Does that have a, as much of an effect as this fear that you're talking about? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, yes, both at home in China and internationally too. 
the CEO of a big corporation, if he comes out and says something favorable about Beijing, he gets a business advantage over competition. During the Mao years, this was so sharp that people were afraid to be honest with each other because they didn't know whether somebody else would gain points, as it were, by going to the leadership and ratting on them. Mm. So there was a, a slogan during the, not a slogan, but a watchword among ordinary people at the end of the Cultural Revolution that says, don't make friends outside of your home. And during the Cultural Revolution, children were induced to denounce their parents even. So even inside the home, one had to guard oneself. And that principle, although it's not as sharp to use the word I just used now, it's still there. And I'll give you an example of that. I teach uh, graduate seminars here at the University of California, Riverside. And a few years ago, I had a seminar that had about six students in it, five of whom were from China. And when you study literature in China, which is what we were studying, it becomes political sometimes because Chinese writers think and worry about politics too. So in the seminar, I noticed that these students would not really open up on anything that was remotely sensitive, quote unquote. But then two of them separately came to me in my office hours, just one-on-one -on -one and opened up. One said, my father signed Charter 08, <laughs> which was a big deal at the time, right. putting your neck out to, to, to sign that document. And another one said that she was friends with a scholar in, in Guangzhou at Zhongshan University. Uh, Ai Xiaoming is the scholar's name. She makes wonderful unofficial films about uh, not just censorship, but social inequality and things. And this student wanted me to know that she knew and respected Ai Xiaoming and was gonna go work with her the next summer on an internship, which again was a pretty bold thing to do. But the point I wanna make is that neither of these two students would say anything close to that at the meeting where all six were there. And the reason for that is the point you just made that they don't know those other students well enough. They don't know if those students might go to the Chinese consulate here in Los Angeles and tell what they heard. So they just don't wanna risk it. Mm. Now, I doubt that those other three or four were, 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 were government agents, I don't think so. But the point is here, vagueness counts again. You don't know. And if you don't know, you pull back. Yeah, the safest thing is to pull back. I was struck rereading the piece. Maybe this occurred to me the first time, but it really struck me coming back to the essay. You emphasize the extent of its reach and how it this touches scholars who study a dynasty from the seventh century. You know, and I was thinking in my own experience with some dissidents from the Soviet Union and Central Europe, right? A, a lot of them will have chosen to go into scientific disciplines or mathematics, right? They, they try to go into disciplines that they think are completely apolitical and won't get them into trouble. And, and one might think, right, studying the late medieval period in China, you would be safe, but you suggest that there's really nothing that you can, <laughs> you can study where, where you can be sure that you'll be kind of left alone to apply your trade in peace. Right. Well, you're certainly right that certain topics are safer than others. And I've seen several examples of Chinese scholars who go professionally into pre-modern studies or to some area that's more mechanical, like linguistics or something, just so that they can be Western style intellectuals without having to touch sensitive topics. If you go into literature or certainly politics or sociology or even anthropology, you're going to run into that more. But the other side, you also point out correctly that even if you do hide away in a, an unsensitive field, what you might say about it could get you into trouble. I mean, you can talk about ancient China, and I mean really ancient, 
you know, 1000 BC. And if you say something that doesn't jive with the principle of Chinese nationalism, you could be doing something politically incorrect. A very simple example of that is that high school students in China are taught that China has 5,000 years of written history, and this is an item of pride for our whole country. And it stands up there sort of next to the Olympics as what makes our nation great. And the Communist Party is very good at identifying itself with Chinese nationalism. So if the Olympics are great, the Communist Party is great. If 5,000 years of Chinese history is great, the Communist Party is great. Sounds crazy, but that's true. So if you're studying ancient, ancient China, even archaeological level China, and admit that China doesn't have 5,000 years of written history, depending on what you count as written history, it's about 3,000 years, not 5,000. But if you were to say that, in public, you could be viewed as challenging Chinese national pride and therefore the Communist Party's national pride. Right. Well, so let's get to the central metaphor, the title of the essay, The Anaconda and the Chandelier. If you were to update the essay for today, I guess the big question is, is is the anaconda still in the chandelier? I mean, I think you you use that metaphor to suggest that it's a big, <laughs> it's a big scary snake, but it's sort of up in the ceiling. You know, it's there. You know, it might crawl down, but it's not. It's not something that you can. You maybe you can reach out and touch. I don't want to get too uh, literal with the metaphor, but what do you think about how that general metaphor holds up for today? Is is the snake any closer to people than it was in two thousand and two? What do you think? Uh, well, you've sort of asked two questions, the metaphor itself and whether it's still there now. Let me take them one by yeah, one. Let's take the metaphor itself. Yes, you're right. It's because it's up over your head. That's important. Looking down on you from above, from a privileged position that says, we know more than you do. A lot of the uh, psychological manipulation of language that the Communist Party uses wants that to be true, that we're at a higher level and we're looking to see whether you can measure up to our level. So the fact that it's up in the air is important. The fact that it doesn't move is important. Uh, an anaconda is a big snake after all. Yeah. <laughs> the chandeliers aren't that big. So if you're gonna put an anaconda in a chandelier, at least as I see it, it's coiled around all these bulbs and stuff but it doesn't have room to slither around. It's not a playing field. And that's important because that great snake up there issuing its threat doesn't move. It's, it's just there and you know it's there. It doesn't have to move because right. it's, its message to you is you yourself decide. And here we get the, the punch behind the self-censorship. I'm just up here not moving. You yourself decide. Now, the second question of whether it's still there today, I think it's even more today and even broader. The degree of intimidation during the Mao years where you could be sent to prison or even executed for mistreating a cat by accident, that has calmed down and gone away. But I would say the breadth of the reach of the anaconda is greater. And the appurtenances that the anaconda can use to control people are much more subtle and complex now. And back in the Mao years, you could be hauled out in the street and berated by a crowd and beaten up physically or worse, or sometimes executed. And that was all sort of there in broad daylight and fairly clear and abrupt. Now, the way, especially Chinese people in China, and I'm not talking about overseas so much now, there's a, a spectrum of warning you and warning you again and putting pressure on you more and then more and more and more that's very well worked out and very expensive, both in money and time. One datum that my Chinese dissident friends like to to uh, quote, this happened starting about 15 years ago. The internal budget for what's called Weiwen, stability maintenance, 
is greater than the national defense budget. So all this stuff about the People's Liberation Army and the submarines and the launches to Mars and stuff added up doesn't cost as much as internal security. And that's because it's very, as I said a moment ago, subtle and sophisticated. It starts with watching you, listening to your phone calls, asking friends what you're saying, and then warning you. And one of the first steps in warning you is to invite you to tea. And that's become a cliche in Chinese political control in the last decade or so. If you are invited to tea, the policemen invite you to the police station or sometimes to a restaurant and are very gentle and they have a smile on their face and say things like, well, are you sure you want to uh, sign Charter 08? Don't you realize that uh, you could have a much better life if you did your own work and didn't do things like that? And don't you want your children to be able to go to the good neighborhood school? And if you don't uh, respond properly, quote unquote, to what your tea invitation has given you, then more teeth come in. Your child can truly be barred from going to the school that's local. Or here you just mentioned the social credit system. You can be banned from buying air tickets and it can be harder for you to buy, buy rail tickets. It can be harder for you or your family to get medical care if you are not obeying the advice. And if it goes beyond that, then it can go to house arrest, which is like this surveillance I was talking about before, but now not only are you surveilled, you are prevented from leaving home unless you are accompanied by policemen. And often these policemen are young hirelings. They're not bad guys and they're almost friendly. And sometimes they even sympathize with the people they're charged with watching, but they do have to watch them. And if you're under house arrest, that's where you go. If that doesn't work, the next step, of course, is being charged with a crime whose result can be that you go to prison for a shorter time or a longer time. And often you're put in what are called detention centers that are not official prisons and do not require that you go to court at all or be charged with anything. It can be an administrative decision to put you in these detention centers that are informally called black jails. That's what the ordinary people call them. If that's not enough, then you can be put in a tough prison for a long time. Right, right. And of course, at the other end of the spectrum is still is the death penalty. China executes more people per year than the rest of the world combined. So you have this from invitation to tea all the way to execution is a graduated process where time and again, the miscreant individual is offered to change his ways, to, to learn right. how to be good. This, uh, and that's different from, from in the Mao period. It wasn't nearly that articulated or that detailed or expensive. Right. You know, it seems like the tools in a way are more efficient. Yeah, I mean, that seems like they've, they've learned some things about how to induce and dissuade and probably more effective in a way. One quick comment and maybe a related question. It seems like a kind, if you were just going to take a kind of rational, you're an ordinary person, you know, who gets invited for tea and you're talking to friends. It seems like the, the message would be a decent life is available to you. All we're asking is yeah. for you not to talk about the massacre. Right. Is that really so, is that really such a horrible thing if you can't talk about the massacre? Right. And so, you know, you can make a kind of rational calculation that, look, this isn't so bad. This is all they're asking. And, and then the flip side of that is, I think you would sort of learn to see the dissidents as sort of self-indulgent, crazy people, Yeah. right? Who, who in their right mind would, would risk their life and not live a decent, quiet life if all you have to do is avoid a couple taboo subjects? And so, right. in a, you know, and I've sort of encountered this in my research in, in the former Czechoslovakia, the, the dissidents get cast as these irresponsible, selfish, self-indulgent people. 
right? And it's it's mm-hmm. sort of I, I guess you could I guess my my point is you can sort of see how it happens, yeah. but it's a really crazy outcome, right? Right. Right. Uh, that parallel with Czechoslovakia is very nice to hear. It, it's exactly that way in China. Some of the first people to complain about a dissident speaking out are the dissident's family, who think, you jerk, don't you know that this is just getting you in trouble and it's getting us in trouble? So why are you doing this? You use the word selfish and the word self-indulgent. Self-indulgent for sure. I'm not so sure about selfish. Sometimes people look at a dissident and they'll think, yeah, you are noble and you're saying the right thing, but you're kind of stupid, blockheaded. Right, uh, right. Self-indulgent in the sense that it's fun to be a hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have these principles that you want to indulge and your principles are fancy <laughs> and they're wonderful, but we ordinary people can't afford to indulge our, our fondness right. for principles, that sort of thing. That's a close paraphrase of some of the lines in, in one of uh, Václav Havel's plays where he has a, a guy who's kind of in bed with the state talking to a dissident. He says, you and your fancy principles, but you know that's fine for you. But for us ordinary folks, we just have to get by. So that, that's, what, that's sort of what I meant by yeah. selfish. It's sort of selfish to be principled would be the, would be the idea. Yeah. And we have to remember, this is probably true in Czechoslovakia as much as in China, the overwhelming majority are the ones who do make those uh, adjustments and avoid these right. sensitive topics until the sensitive topics become almost, almost like boulders along a mountain path. Yeah, that boulder's there, but I'm going to walk past it. Why not? It, it's abnormal to decide I'm going to stand up on principle and say something bold. Right. Another interesting consequence of this to me is that when these dissidents do come out of China, and they can speak freely with fewer costs, although even outside of China, they think of their relatives inside and sometimes muzzle themselves in part. I can give you some examples of that if you want later. But they come out of China and they they congregate in a place like Princeton, where I met a bunch of them, or New York or Los Angeles, and they get in fights. They fight all the time. (laughs) First, that disappoints me. I mean, these people that agree on so much and want to stand up for principle in the same way, why do they fight with each other? And I think we can say in general, it's because they are strong, unusual characters. You have to be a strong, unusual character in order to stand up to such a powerful, uh, threatening regime. So inside China, they have almost a unity that's thrust upon them by the presence of that power that's oppressing them together. So of course they stick together. When they come out, that big anaconda looming over them isn't there or not nearly as close. So now they can come out and say what they think and they find out that, hey, I don't completely agree with you. And, <laughs> right, right. And, and, and then they get into fights with each other. As a generalization, we can certainly say that the the dissidents in China, whether they are inside or outside, are very strong personalities. I hardly know one exception to that rule. Yeah, yeah. Before, when you were at some point in the in the conversation, when you were you were talking about different forms of repression, you mentioned the persecution of of the Uyghurs. I wondered if you might talk a bit about how you think that fits in to the, uh, this broader strategy of just maintaining power from the standpoint of the regime, in what sense are these Uyghurs uh, a threat to their maintenance of power? What's the goal in East Turkestan? Ah, there's several answers to that. One for sure is that the Communist Party leadership observed the collapse of the Soviet Union and concluded that in part it was because of what they call the color revolutions, Mm. where the Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Georgia and wherever were seceding or threatening to secede and that this helped to disaggregate the culture, the Soviet Union. 
and they don't want that to happen in China. Now the border areas in China are the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and the Mongolians. The Mongols have been oppressed pretty badly in the last five or six years too. It doesn't get into the news very much because it's not nearly as severe as the Uyghurs problem. But Taiwan and Hong Kong also fall into that. There is a fear that if these areas do become autonomous in the true sense, they're called autonomous areas, but they're not. But if they do, it will diminish the prestige of the center. And someone like Xi Jinping, the current dictator, has made a big deal of rejuvenating the Chinese nation, recovering our power because of the so-called century of humiliation uh, during the 19th century when British gunboats showed up and other foreigners and they were gonna carve up China like a melon. And it's true that that fear in Chinese people, not just the communists, but the nationalists too, that we suffered indignities during the 19th century. Now we're gonna come back and be our own boss. So the issue of so-called sovereignty and the reach of sovereignty becomes not only a geographical issue, but a national pride issue. Mm. And to bring it down to a particular leader like Xi Jinping, it means for him, if he can make progress on this issue of national sovereignty and unification and a very tough borderline looking outward, he's recouping strength at the center. Really all of this repressing Hong Kong and repressing the Uyghurs, I view as concentrated really on strengthening the center. That's what he wants to do. So I guess I have galloped over two or three reasons, but all of that's involved with the Uyghurs. Another thing involved with the Uyghurs in particular is that they're religious. They're followers of Islam and the Communist Party of China doesn't like it when anybody else has a systematic kind of thought that they don't control. Mm. So if you're Christian, if you're Islam, if you're Buddhist, uh, you can be Buddhist as long as you are, uh, you show fealty to the Communist Party of China. For the Christian churches, for example, they have the, the patriotic church as it's called and the underground churches, and for Catholicism in particular, this is very clear. Uh, they want the bishops to be appointed by the Chinese government and the churches to be open where they can be surveilled and people can be questioned if they start to get out of line. That's all okay. But if you have your underground churches, it's not okay because we don't control it. So the religion of the Uyghurs, which is very important to a lot of Uyghurs and breaks your heart to look at the aerial surveillance of the number of mosques in the Xinjiang area that have just been completely flattened. They don't want a system of thought to be alive unless they can control it. And they don't control the Islam belief in, in, in Xinjiang of the Tajiks as well as the Uyghurs. So all of those are reasons why the Xinjiang problem relates to the power of the Communist Party of yeah. China. Is that is that a change maybe? I mean, this the persecution of the Uyghurs, would that be one way in which there's a pretty significant difference from um, the, the standpoint of the country from 2002 to today that, the, you know, the system of psychological control and self-censorship is true then and it's true now but now you also have this much more overt persecution and concentration camps and labor camps. Right. Um, is that, has that been kind of ramped up? In, oh, in yeah. Last? Yeah, okay. Absolutely ramped up, yeah. mostly under Xi Jinping. And I would argue, although I don't know Mr. Xi personally, I would argue that he does it more for the power at the center that I was just describing. Right. That he does out of a real fear that there would be a color revolution way out there in Central Asia. Right. Yeah. Part of the repression of the Uyghurs too is to give an example to others. This is the same as 
those other anaconda principles we were talking about. If you see what happens to the Uyghurs, then you Mongols, you Tibetans, and so on will have to take stock of that. It's ironic in a sense that the Communist Party of China wants the news of what they're doing in Xinjiang to spread inside China, to intimidate others inside China. And it doesn't want it to spread outside, of course, because that gives bad international press. Right. Mm. You've mentioned the dissidents a couple of times, and I know you've uh, edited a collection of, of writings by Lu Xiaobo, one of the signatories to Charter 08. Right. Um, so, so maybe we're sort of getting near to the end of our time. We could talk for a few minutes about the dissidents, maybe say, say a few things about the genesis of Charter 08, Lu Xiaobo was, and uh, kind of where the where that movement stands today, if it still exists, and um, you know how it's doing. I've just finished a couple of months ago a biography of Liu Xiaobo that's uh, co-authored with one of his good friends. Hmm. Uh, so I'm very proud of this book. I look forward to seeing it actually get published and out there. Does it but have a title yet? Well, we're still debating the title. Okay. The last iteration that we've gone through with our literary agent is, what was it? It's um, Long... Long March Toward Freedom, which is a play on uh, a Nelson Mandela's book that's called Long Walk to Freedom. Mm. And we changed the word to to toward because Mandela, of course, got there and he was president of the new Republic of South Africa. Liu Xiaobo died in prison. Uh, so he was going toward freedom in the sense that Mandela got there. But a lot of parallels among Mandela and actually Havel and Liu Xiaobo are appropriate in my view. Havel too, of course, got there and was eventually the president of the Czech Republic or was it Czechoslovakia when he- He was president of both. He, yeah, he president was president of, of Czechoslovakia. And then when the country split, he offered himself up for, for election to the Czech Republic and won, so. Uh, and by the way, Havel had a big influence on Liu Xiaobo. Liu Xiaobo got famous at the Beijing massacre when he helped to rescue some students from massacre at the end and so on. But he was much more significant in Chinese history, in my view anyway, in the early 2000s. He was in a labor camp from 1996 to 99 and he really matured when he was in the labor camp. That's where he read, uh, no, I take it back. That's not where he read Havel. He read a lot of Christian theology then, and he read a lot of history, and he got much more sort of humanistic and gentle. He went in as a firebrand, and he sort of came out as a almost Gandhian-like figure. Hmm. His philosophy over the last decade of his freedom was no enemies, no hatred, uh, meaning that the way to um, bring about change is not to work from the top down, but from the bottom up. Not from the top down because that had been tried in the 80s when people were wanting dialogue with the top leadership and trying to help the so-called reformists in the top leadership and trying to put out um, constitutions and laws that the top would, would adopt and then apply. And then there was the massacre. And that was a very dramatic way of showing, no, that approach is not gonna work. Mm -hmm. So people like Liu Xiaobo in the second coming of their democracy movement in the early two, two, 2000s decided to work from the bottom up and here's where Havel had a big uh, influence on Liu Xiaobo because Havel had this idea, well, you know this better than I do, that you've got this fearsome power over you, but in the crevices of society where ordinary people can be good to each other in ordinary daily life and start to trust each other and work from the bottom up, that's anyway what Liu Xiaobo took from Havel and mm. thought it was right. 
and started that way. And he had he developed a method. And I think if he goes down in history, his method will be what he deserves to go down in history for. His method was start at the bottom, go out into society, find real people with real grievances, these people who lie low, who don't want to stick their neck out, but they have a grievance. Like there's a factory in their city that's putting poisonous gas into the atmosphere or polluting their water, and they don't like that. So you find a group of people that have a legitimate grievance and you advertise it. Because in the early 2000s was just when the internet was coming into China. And the internet was a big, big change maker because it was the first medium that came into China, into communist China, that could be controlled from the bottom up. You could put your messages on email, you could put messages on your website, no matter who you were until they later figured it out and learned how to repress these websites. But his method was you find people who are objecting to the installation of a poison factory or something, and you put that message out on the internet, and then others will see it. And then you have all these other people who aren't directly involved with that factory, but do see the point of a force from the top taking advantage of people that are weak below and sympathize. So right away through the internet, you have a way of taking a local factory and making it broader and having not political hoity-toity talk behind it, but just common sense. We shouldn't have pollution of the air and the water. And everybody's gonna believe that. Uh, he has a very wonderful article uh, that tells about a, a murder case that happened in Guizhou province in a not very famous place. But what happened was a young woman was murdered and her body thrown into the river after she'd been raped by three guys. And the three guys were related to local officials. So the whole thing was bottled up and those guys got off scot-free until somebody discovered something about this and put it on the internet. Put it on the internet, immediately people all over the area knew about it and reflexively were indignant and took the side of the murdered girl and her family. And overnight almost, there was this big congregation of people around the Communist Party offices in the town of Wong'an, that's the name of the town where this happened. And there was a siege of the government building and eventually it had to be dispersed by force. And during oh, wow. war, people were, were injured and stuff. So- What year would this have been? This was 2006. Huh. Or seven, I can't remember. If you have that book that you mentioned a moment ago, that Liu Xiaobo book, it's in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, look for Wang An, W-E-N-G hyphen A-N. But Liu Xiaobo's lesson that he took from that was, there are all these people out there with good moral common sense, even though they're lying low. And if you can put a story out that illustrates cruelty, they will be on your side immediately. And the more of those you get organized, the harder it is for local officials to continue their clampdown. And the harder it is for the officials above them to tolerate it so that the local officials who are responsible get squeezed from both sides. The top that says, you're not keeping the lid on your area. And the bottom that says, what you did is outrageous. And because of the internet, we can do this. And then he's got several examples of where this kind of principle got established well enough that it was put into law and into national law. Yeah, this seems like the strategy of Charter 77 um, in Czechoslovakia, right? Point out these concrete uh, examples of, of the regime not abiding by its own laws or engaging in certain concrete acts of, of injustice. My other question related to Liu Xiaobo was the current status of Charter 08. Does it still exist in, uh, in any significant sense? Or are there signatories who are active? Or are they all languishing in labor camps? What's, what's going on with the Charter 08? Oh, it's a sad story. If we say that the 89 massacre killed the liberalization movement of the 80s, 
we can say that the crackdown on Charter 08 killed the citizens movement of the 2000s where Liu Xiaobo made his big contribution. Most people don't know, although when our book comes out, <laughs> it'll be known, Liu Xiaobo wasn't in favor of Charter 08 until the very end of the process because he was so wedded to this hovel type approach of ground up. He had a famous article called to change a regime by changing a society. Mm -hmm. His ultimate goal is yes, regime change, but you do it from the ground up. And when his friends came along and said, we wanna write down our political principles in Charter 08, he didn't think that was a good idea because he said, you're gonna do the same error we did in the eighties. They're gonna crack down on it and it's gonna ruin the, the whole movement. But then as the writing went on, more and more of his friends came to him and said, you gotta help us, not only because he's smart and he could be a good editor, but because he had such broad social context by then. He had dived into society starting in the early 2000s as part of this Havel-esque ground up approach. So he had contacts among farmers and businessmen and people who were in the political system inside it, but in their hearts sympathized. He had all these contacts. And the Charter 08 people said, we need those people to sign. Obviously, it's better if they do. You have this broad-based approach rather than just a bunch of pointed heads dissidents. So he finally gave in and he agreed to do that. And most of his effort wasn't, he didn't draft the charter. He edited it and he went around getting signatures for it. And then the most noble thing that he did for the charter was that when it came near the end, and the sabers were already rattling on the other side. Everybody knew that this was really dangerous now. And what he volunteered to do was to take political responsibility for it, putting his name up front, admitting to the regime that he was responsible for it. And I think we have to say that the reason he got an 11 year sentence, whereas the others involved got very short sentences or no sentences, plenty of visits to invite you to tea and so on, uh, was because he took that responsibility. Mm -hmm. I won't say it's all because of that, because his writings themselves, like this one, to change a regime by changing society, that was cited at his trial as one of his major crimes. And you can see why. I mean, we started our talk today about saying the Communist Party's highest priority is to preserve the regime, right? And here's a guy who publishes an article telling how to change a regime. Right. There were other things that, that brought that heavy sentence on him, but his responsibility for Charter 08 was a main reason as well. So within a month of the Charter's appearance, it was already being purged from the internet and people were being, every single person who signed it at first, there were 303 signatures of the original charter. Every single one of them was invited to tea and either talked out or tried to be talked out of doing any more with it. So it, yeah, it withered and its main leader was put in jail and he, he died there. And so it's people who look back at it now, there's actually a debate about whether in retrospect, it was a smart thing to do or not. Hmm. One side saying, yes, because at least it put a stake in the ground, right? It said, here's the kind of society we want. And we know that a lot of people agree with this, even if they don't dare to sign. So just putting the flag in the ground is important. Others say, no, it was a serious tactical mistake because this citizens movement that Liu Xiaobo with Havel's uh, inspiration had been growing, stopped then. It, it just, it, it ground to a halt. For one, the internet was much more effectively controlled. The Communist Party figured out how to do that. So it's much harder to be flamboyant on the internet now than it was 15 years ago. Right, right. Well, that's fascinating. Well, maybe one one last question just thinking about back to the to the article from 2002, the Anaconda and the Chandelier, if you had to 
to write a new version of that? Would you change it in any way, make some additions? Or, you know, do you think it sort of stands, um, it should stand as it is, and there's no need to, to kind of update it? Any sort of, if someone asked you to write a new new version of it, would you just say, well, just reprint what I wrote because it's true enough? <laughs> well, let me give two answers to that. If I were to edit it now, as I wished it had appeared in 2002, no. I think for what I wanted to say in 2002, that's about as well as I can say it. I don't think I could improve it. If you mean, would I want to write an anaconda part two, as it were? Yeah, sort of adapt it to, to the circumstances of, of 2021, I guess. Yeah, I would. I. Uh, that would be a lengthy project for me because as we've just talked about today, the ramifications now have gone overseas and they've clearly gone into other areas. I have a friend who's a former ambassador to China. I better not mention his name because I haven't permission for this, but he's written to me saying that this anaconda kind of problem that you write about is even worse in the diplomatic world than it is in the scholarly world. And I've had business friends say the same kind of thing. So to dig into the ways that it has applied now and is now going worldwide would be a big topic, an important topic. And so I'd have to write a lot more too, but I don't have plans to do that. And I guess the reason is that <laughs> I've got other plans that outweigh it. I mean, this book of uh, this biography of Liu Xiaobo took precedence for me for about the last four years. Yeah. Well, yeah, finish, finish the biography and then, and then we'll uh, put the pressure on you to update the Anaconda piece. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Perry Link, this has been great. And uh, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. And I'm sure our listeners if they don't already know about it, I will uh, post the link to the essay so they can read it. And uh, I think we've had a great conversation. So thanks again for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was, uh, I won't say fun because the topic isn't fun, but right. uh, the conversation was certainly stimulating. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, good. Take care. You've been listening to Enduring Interest podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest. <laughs>